welcome to Process, a podcast where we have honest conversations about what it takes to manage the ups and downs of the creative journey. I'm Marcela Chamorro, your host. On this episode, I'm really excited to be speaking to James Clear, writer and entrepreneur who reaches 500,000 readers per month with his articles on habit formation, willpower, and more. Today, I'm going to ask James to share his daily schedule, what his journey has been like, and how he plans to continue to grow his creativity in the future. But most of all, I'm so curious to ask James how he makes sure he walks the walk on staying healthy and productive all the time. Let's get to it. James, it's awesome to have you on Process. Hi, James. Thanks so much for being on Process. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days. Sure. So I write at jamesclear.com. I write about behavioral psychology, habit formation, and performance improvement. So basically, I write about how to build better habits. I've been writing there for about three years now. Audience has grown fairly quickly. Uh, We have about 500,000 people reading each month and about 200,000 on the email list. So it's great to to be able to connect with people and share a message that, that people find interesting and useful. And my hope is that in some small way, the articles I write are able to give you some practical insights and ideas for how to take action and, and build better habits. So, I mean, it's I've been following you for a while, and the first time we met was a few years ago. But So I'm curious a little bit about James Clear before jamesclear.com. Um, you mm-hmm. had another website, right? Yep. Passive Panda, is that correct? Right. So... I've been an entrepreneur for five years, uh, full-time for five years. The first two, uh, which is when I was doing Passive Panda and some other projects, basically now I look back on it as kind of like an incubation period for my skill set. When I was getting started, I like a lot of entrepreneurs, I had no entrepreneurs in my family, uh, so I didn't really have anybody to look to there. I, I had one friend who was like a DJ, so that was really the only person I knew who was like a, a freelancer or an entrepreneur of some sort. Super um, similar to what you do, yes. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly what I do. So I didn't really have much to look at. And, you know, so I, I started connecting with some people online and stuff. And I, I tried a bunch of different ideas in the, that first year. The best piece of advice I got early on was try things until something comes easily. And it sounds really simple, but different offers or different businesses convert at different rates. Like some things are desirable and interesting to people and some things are not. But it's as the person who creates those ideas, it's really hard to figure out what that is beforehand. You almost have to, you know, create it and try it and then see what sticks as a little aside and applying that to writing. I can't remember who said this quote, but there's someone has a great quote where it says, uh, my job is to worry about quantity. Your job is to worry about quality. And I love that idea of the artist's job is to put in the work and to produce. And it's the audience's job to decide whether that's useful for them or impactful for them. And it kind of removes a little bit of the need to like judge yourself a lot because I, you know, I think all artists deal with that where they, they criticize and they fall into this loop of self judgment where you're like, Oh, my work's not good enough or this isn't big enough or this isn't great enough. And now I kind of try to remove the emotion from the process and just say, look, my job is to do the work to the best of my ability. And then whatever happens to it happens. So I tried a bunch of ideas during that first year, tried an iPhone app and that totally flopped and a bunch of other stuff, a couple other websites nobody signed up for. And I realized that the problem was I didn't know how to market my work. I didn't know how to build an audience of any type. So the ideas may have been okay. They probably weren't great, but I, I didn't have any way of getting them in front of people to figure out if they were decent. So I started studying how to build an audience and how to write online and build a blog and an email list and all that stuff. And as I read more about it, I basically realized that 
it would come down to consistency in a lot of ways. But I also realized that I didn't know why people bought things. Like I, I didn't know why people would sign up for something. And so I started studying consumer psychology to figure out like what drives purchasing decisions, what drives someone to sign up for an email list. And the more that I studied that psychology stuff, the more I started seeing how I could apply psychology and behavior change to things I was doing in my own life, how to eat better, uh, eat better meals or eat healthier meals, how to stick to my workout routine, how to be more productive. And so I started writing about what I was kind of learning and experimenting with in private, uh, writing about habits and behavior change. And I did that for about a year. And then that document got to be like 60 pages long. And eventually I was like, all right, this is ridiculous. You can just publish something. And so at this point, I was about two years into my entrepreneurial journey. I had done a bunch of things just to make money and get by. I'd done some freelancing work, uh, built a couple websites for the first six months. Then I ended up building an email list up to about 18,000 or 20,000 on Passive Panda over those first 18 months. And that website doesn't exist anymore, but it was about basically how to market yourself as a freelancer and, and earn more money as a freelancer or a coach. And so I built a couple courses for them. You know, I built my first, I wrote my first ebook. I built my first membership course and basically didn't have any smashing success, but made enough money to be full time and learned how to build an email list and how to design a website and how to code and all that stuff. And so when I started jamesclear.com, I decided, let me take an article from that 60 page document that I've been writing. And I already had a lot of the skills that I needed because I've been working on that stuff for the last two years. So although jamesclear.com started from scratch, at least I knew what I was doing when I got started. Gotcha. And it sounds to me like from following you on different uh, social media, I find it really interesting how you separate, it seems that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you separate out the content that you post on different social media. So like your Instagram is really focused on workouts and your progress there. And I find your some of the tweets that you send out very quotable. So for example, like recently you tweeted out, too often we spend our lives visiting the world instead of shaping it, create something, make something, contribute something. It's interesting to hear how you came up with what you're creating and contributing. How did you come across writing? Like, why did you decide to write that 60 page? Well, it ended up being 60 pages, but writing as your way to contribute. And how do you manage that versus other things that you do? Because I know that you give seminars and you mentioned eBooks. So how do you manage all those things that you're contributing? Yeah, good question. So First, on the the Instagram note, I so I actually have two Instagrams. I have one for weightlifting, uh, and I have one that shares my photography work. And I, you're right, I do kind of silo the way that I share things. And the reason I do that is because I don't want the signal to be diluted. And a lot of people, like some people really, you know, fitness is huge on Instagram. Some people really like following along. And if you're into that, like I'm into that, then you like to follow people and who are sharing their workouts and see what others are doing. But if you're not into that, seeing someone else's workout can just be really annoying and clog up your feed. So I want to give people the chance to like opt into the experience they want and they can choose say and say, yes, I want to hear more about this or no, I don't want to hear about this. Whereas if I just shared it all on one account, then I don't know, it'd be it'd be like my workout one time, it'd be an article I wrote, it'd be a picture I took. And it could become kind of noisy, because people are only there for like one out of every three posts, and then they don't have a good reason to follow. So that's the thought process behind it, at least. But to answer your bigger question about why I stuck with writing or why I started with writing, honestly, I didn't think about it too much. Uh, the thought was, okay, what if I die and I haven't shared any of the things I learned? That was kind of the underlying like driver of why I wanted to share stuff and why I wanted to, to contribute. And so writing seemed like a decent way to do that. It was like, oh, I have an idea, so let me just kind of write it down. And that's sort of where I naturally fell into. Now, 
since that time, I, you know, now that I'm in the space, I know that people do podcasts and YouTube channels and some people write and stuff. And I do think that it's important to understand that there are a variety of ways to get your message out. I mean, podcasting is probably more personal than writing. You know, people will feel like they have a connection to you because they're listening to you. Video is great. I think that video is a pain to process and, you know, and edit and everything. It just takes a lot of effort and energy. But if you're into that, it can be awesome. Writing, the great thing about writing is that it's always sitting there for someone to read. And it's probably the most, well, either audio or text are the most transportable forms, right? Like you can take a book with you anywhere and read it. But you should not get into writing or building a blog just because everyone says you should build a blog. If you don't like writing, it's going to be a real struggle to build a good blog because that's what it is. I mean, it's just it's a bunch of articles. So that's something that I didn't realize I would like when I got started. If you talk to any of my English teachers, for example, they would say, yeah, he's all right. I mean, they never would have said I was a great writer or anything. Mm -hmm. But through the process of writing more, I've really come to enjoy it. And that was just kind of a happy accident for me. That wasn't planned. And I think there are probably a lot of people who, through the process of writing on their blog for a month or two or three, they realize they really don't like it. And that's fine. Uh, you just have to find the medium and the format that works for you. I'm curious why um, for years, this is three years that you've had jamesclear.com growing it that you've posted twice a week and you're now transitioning to once a week. Tell me a little bit about why you've made that choice and how is that affecting your creative output? So I just made the transition from two articles a week. I was writing every Monday and Thursday to now I'm just writing on Mondays. Um, and I just did that uh, like a week and a half ago. So I really don't have much data on how it's impacted things or changed things. But I can tell you that writing twice a week changed my business and changed my life. That was the one thing that you know completely changed it for me. I realized that looking back on it now, I'm a terrible judge of my own work. And so by forcing myself to show up twice a week, I put things out into the world that I would never have shipped otherwise. And that actually was incredibly important because a lot of my more popular articles just wouldn't have been written, but I had to get something out that day. The most popular article I wrote in my first year of writing on jamesclear.com, I wrote in the passenger seat of a car while driving through West Virginia just because I had to get something out. Which and, was it? Uh, Identity-based habits. I knew it. Um, yeah, I send that article at least like once a month to somebody like there's this one thing that I really think you should read. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, well, it's good stuff. So. so but that's a good example of how we as artists or as writers or a creator of any type. We judge ourselves, but we don't really know what we're doing. Um, we don't really know what's good or what's bad or what resonates with people or what doesn't. And one of the reasons that's so hard to parse through that is the curse of knowledge, basically. Things that you already know about or that seem normal and basic to you can be a huge light bulb moment, this, this life-changing idea to someone who's never heard about it before. But in your own mind, when you're thinking about the idea, you're like, well, this is kind of boring. This, I, you know, Everybody already knows this when that's not the truth. So that's just one of many reasons why it can be hard to do that. But uh, sticking to that twice a week schedule made a huge difference for me. If I write twice a week, that means I have eight or nine articles a month. And if I have eight or nine, then that means two or three of them are going to be decent. Um, I have to try my hardest each time, but I know I'll have those two or three at the end of the month. And once you have two or three good pieces, 
every marketing strategy is easier. I think it's so easy to fall into this trap of how do we turn, you know, our work into content marketing or how do we figure out ways to, you know, promote our stuff. And promotion's important, but when you get wrapped up in the strategies and the tactics, you forget about doing great work. And so when you have great work to share, every tactic is easier. Twitter works better, Facebook works better, reaching out to journalists for interviews or podcasters for interviews, that works better getting people to republish and syndicate your stuff as a possibility. All of these things are open to you once you have a great piece. And so my twice a week schedule forced me to sit down and, and focus on that. And so it made a big difference. But the reason that I decided to switch is because in the beginning, what I needed three years ago is different than what I need now. I didn't have my voice figured out then. So I needed to put in my reps and put in a volume of work to figure out what that voice was. I didn't really know. I knew generally what I was going to write about, but I didn't really know what I was going to write about that interested me that also interested other people. Now I kind of know that. So I have a better direction for what I should write about or what people find impactful. And that for me, that's the whole goal of the project is to, to try to move the needle a little bit and, you know, make my corner of the world a slightly better place. So how could I do that if I didn't know what made people better, what they actually resonated with? So I needed that volume of work to figure those things out. But now that I've done that volume of work, I find myself wanting to investigate issues on a deeper level. And a lot of the articles that I want to write are two or three day projects. They're not things that I can pound out in one day. My typical article takes the minimum amount of time it takes me to write an, write an article is four to five hours. If it's a good article and I go deeper on it, then it's closer to eight to 10. If it's a big article and I actually do a really good job, then it's probably like 15 to 20. And there are a lot of those 15 to 20 hour articles that I want to write. And I can't do that twice a week because there's other stuff I have to do in my business. You mentioned seminars and speaking and just general website maintenance, all those little tasks that you need to do. And, uh, you know, I have stuff that I have to keep track of managing employees and whatnot. So there's only so much time and space for articles. So I have to cut one of those out so that I can investigate those issues deeper and really spend, you know, 15 plus hours on a, on a great article. So that was the main reason behind this shift is so I could do deeper work. So tell me a little bit about what it is like to be you, you know, day to day, you know, from morning to night, what is it like to be James Clear? Because from your writing and from your website, it's not that clear that there's all this other stuff going on. The seminars and your other products, yes, but that admin stuff, how do you manage having to balance that with your creative time. Sure. So I'll use uh, the twice a week schedule as an example, since that's what I know well and what I did for the first three years. And like I said, I just switched. So I don't have much to say about the new schedule yet. But so every Monday and Thursday, I would write an article. So you can pretty much block those days off as writing days. Like I said, most articles would take a minimum of four to five hours and maybe more. And I fell into this the first two years. It was very much like I would just create and then I would you know, publish the article and send it out via email and on social media. I fell into this bad habit in the third year, this most recent year of I knew that I would stick to my schedule because I never broke it. And so because I knew that I would get the article out, I like started doing other tasks that I needed to get done on Mondays and Thursdays in the morning. And then that turned into, oh, I won't get the article done till like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And that was a real pain. Uh, because I 
I basically was tricking myself into doing other productive things, but then I was sabotaging myself later in the day, and then I'd have these late nights, and it was it was annoying. But also, um, procrastination is something you talk about. <laughs> yes, about. exactly. It's kind of like a productive procrastination. It was weird, you know. Like I was doing other things that I needed to do, like redesigning the website or fixing some search engine stuff, or I don't know, like you know, doing interviews or emails or whatever. So it wasn't like I was just sitting around watching YouTube videos, but I was doing things that like that I knew needed to get done, but I wouldn't make time for otherwise. And so then anyway, but to answer your question, so writing on Mondays and Thursdays, I have a couple rules that are really key to my schedule that I think can apply to any entrepreneur. So the first is I don't cheat myself on sleep. I get at least eight hours, often nine hours a night. And part of that is because of my other rule, which is I work out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So I do strength training. We mentioned my Instagram weightlifting account earlier. And so I'm, I'm training fairly heavy uh, a lot of the time. So I need the eight or nine hours to recover. But regardless of what kind of fitness you're into, whether it's running or weightlifting or yoga or whatever, I find that I really need that time to handle the roller coaster ride of emotions that awaits every entrepreneur. If I didn't have that time and space for myself where I could reset and find some sanity and some clarity, then I think I would have bailed from being an entrepreneur a long time ago. The stress of it would have would have gotten me long before this. And so by having that time, I'm able to create some, you know, some space for me to reset and then find the creative energy I need to do the work that's, you know, that's important and that's public on my site. Another thing that I do that uh, could be useful for entrepreneurs is manage my energy rather than my time. And this is an idea from a book called The Powerful Engagement by uh, Tony Schwartz and Jim Lair. And the basic idea is that you can have an hour available to do a task. But if you don't have any energy to do that task, you feel exhausted, then having the time doesn't really matter. Time management is, is kind of under or, uh, overrated in that sense. So the way that I think about it, the way that I apply it is that my creative energy is often best used in the morning. Um, that's usually when I'm at my most creative or have the best energy to do my writing. So as much as possible, I try to stack my writing or strategic tasks, uh, strategic design stuff I need to do for my business in the morning. That also means that I don't schedule any calls in the morning. So calls and repetitive things that I don't necessarily need to be creative for. Certainly, I still need to do a good, good job on them, but I don't need to come up with new ideas. That stuff, interviews, email, any repetitive task is moved to the afternoon. Then I tend to find that I get my best workouts in in the evening. So that's when I work out. Um, usually in the like 5 to 7 p.m. range, somewhere in there. So those are three examples of how I like shift my tasks around so that they're at the optimal time for when my energy is is best uh, used for that. Another tool that I use to kind of make this a possibility for me or, or force myself into a box where I'm using my energy in the best way is Freedom. It's freedom.to, I believe is the website. And it's basically a tool that you install on your computer and you can set up a recurring block so that it will block certain websites, whichever websites you define for any given period of time. So I have it set up so that Gmail, uh, my email client, is blocked from 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. every Monday through Friday. So every weekday, I cannot answer email until 11 a.m. And usually my rule of thumb is don't answer email till noon. Noon is also when the first call would start for me or interview or anything like that. So I try to give myself until the lunch hour before I'm doing anything that would interrupt the creative energy that I have in the morning. That's interesting. And I wonder why you, I actually use freedom as well. Why do you set it at 4 a.m. if you wake up later? <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, I don't know. I just set that in case I, you know, get up early some one day or whatever. I don't want to. I'm not going to be getting up at four a.m. Yeah. So even if I get up early at six or something, then I, you know, it's still blocked. And I won't fall into it. So I'm curious if it's difficult for you to remember everything uh, that you were. All- so there's so many things that we need to apply in terms of improving ourselves and our habits and all this stuff. And I feel like self improvement is just a list of things that I have a hard time, you know, maybe one week I'll focus on, you know, morning pages and then the next week it's meditation. Do you have a hard time remembering everything that works for you or that you want to work on? Or do you kind of expect for you to, you know, walk the walk as well? And it's not a big deal. So I think it's very important uh, as someone who writes about these concepts for me to live them out as well. And I always want to make sure that I'm being someone who doesn't just have an opinion, but is someone who like exercises these ideas in, in practice, because that helps keep me grounded and understand exactly what you're talking about right now, which is how hard it is to actually do these things and implement them. So with that in mind, what I've found has worked best for me is being ruthless about cutting things out of my schedule. There are all sorts of things that could work. Morning pages, for example. Great routine. I don't do it. I haven't done it for the last three years. Meditation. Also great. I don't do it. It's not a habit for me. I find that what I try to focus on are what I would call keystone habits. And that's, you know, the one or two behaviors that pull the rest of your life in line. So for me, weightlifting is a keystone habit. So I work out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and there are a variety of things that happen when I do that. Certainly, I get the benefits of strength training and of weightlifting and just, you know, the general health improvements. But when I get done, I feel like eating better. My nutrition kind of naturally improves because I don't, I feel like, oh, I don't want to waste it. You know, maybe I could cheat or, you know, rationalize it in my head like, oh, I can eat ice cream now. But that's just, I don't know, it's not my natural tendency when I work out. I actually tend to eat worse when I'm not working out and better when I am working out. So my nutrition improves. Because of that, my energy improves. So I have better energy uh, to put toward my work. I also have like this hour where I get this real, you know, post-workout high, this kind of block of mental clarity where I can think through issues really well. I tend to sleep better at night because I'm tired after working out, which means I wake up the next morning and I have better energy to put in my work into my work then. So all of these things, better nutrition, better energy, better focus, better sleep. At no point did I build a habit to do any of those four things. I just focused on building a habit of strength training, but there was this ripple effect from doing that. And there are all sorts of keystone habits like that. Weightlifting uh, happens to be mine, but meditation is one that you hear a lot. CEOs will often swear by their daily meditation habit. If they get their 10 minutes of meditation in, for example, then the rest of their day kind of falls in line. Walking is a common one. Uh, There's a great book called Daily Rituals by Mason Curie, where he just kind of talks about the rituals of artists and creators and scientists from all different fields. And a lot of them use drugs, but the ones that didn't, they often relied on walking. That A daily walk was very very central to the creative process for many of these people. Another one is finances. So like if people get their their budget in line, then often they find that that one habit of managing their money well trickles into the other areas of their life. So there are a bunch of different examples. My suggestion would be think about what you do on your best days. What are the things that kind of when you have a good day, when you seem to be on top of your game, what are the things that that are common to that? And you'll probably be able to develop a list of, you know, four or five things and uh, take a look at that list. And maybe one of those will be your keystone habit. So it's going to require some personal experimentation. But I find that it's much more useful and practical for me to make sure I never miss my keystone habit than to feel guilty or worrying about sticking to the 25 good things that I could be doing. 
So earlier you mentioned a little bit about the entrepreneurial roller coaster and how mm -hmm. there might have been a moment or two where you might have considered to step off the roller coaster. How do you manage a bad day or a creative low? What would constitute a creative low for you now? How do you manage that? Well, there are all sorts of different bad days, right? Like, you know, there's the stereotypical ones that you get an email with bad news or whatever. But often I find for me as a writer, it's just when you're you want to produce something, but you can't seem to make yourself do it for some reason, or you do produce something and you're like, this is terrible. It often revolves around like guilt and self judgment and shame uh, of some sort. So that's another area where those keystone habits or like a physical outlet really comes in to save me. You know, I mentioned that that was the thing that kept me from falling off the roller coaster. So to speak. If I have, you know, if I'm struggling with a problem or I'm struggling with writing an article, which is probably the most common issue when we talk about creative lows for me, maybe I'm battling with this for, you know, five or six hours throughout the day. And I feel like I don't really have a whole lot to show for all my effort by the time I get done. When I get up from my desk and leave and go to the gym, at least I can get a good workout in. At least I can look back on those five or 10 sets and know that I did that well. And so I come back and maybe the article isn't what I wanted it to be, but I don't feel totally terrible or useless about my entire day. So I guess the advice that I'm really giving here or sharing the lessons I've learned is that you need to have more than just your work. Because if you rely and pour your, your sense of self-worth all into one thing, if that one thing happens to stagnate, then all of a sudden you're judging yourself and feeling guilty and shameful. So for me, that's probably been the, the best outlet for dealing with those creative lows. Interesting. And so I have a, a last question for you. Uh, it's a little bit of a double question. What worries you about the future? And is that the same thing that excites you about the future? Sometimes they're the same thing. Sometimes they're different. Hmm. It's a good question. I don't Stumped. know. What worry. I think what, you know, there's a, a friend of mine named Tim Urban. He writes at a site called waitbutwhy.com. And he wrote a great article about kind of futurism and artificial intelligence and the growth of technology and whatnot. And one of the interesting things about this problem or about the future is that the pace of technological improvement, the pace of growth in our society is not linear. In, in many ways, it's exponential. So if you think, for example, and there are obvious examples of this, if you start to think about it a little bit, if you look at how people lived, say, 500 years ago um, in the 1500s or 1400s, somewhere around there, the way that people lived in the 1400s wasn't all that different from the way people lived in the 1800s. You know, there were some improvements, but it, it, more or less, it was pretty similar. But the way that we live today compared to the way people lived in the 1800s, which is just half the time, a 200 year difference is incredibly different, right? Planes, cars, television, air conditioning, refrigeration tons of technological advances. And so the argument is that it's these things are not increasing in a linear fashion. They're actually starting to increase faster and faster. And it's really hard for the human brain to comprehend exponential growth. It's hard to comprehend the idea that in the next 20 years, for example, it's possible for society to make as much progress or change as much as it did in the previous 200 years. But that's what exponential growth means. It means that the doubling time keeps getting cut smaller and smaller and smaller. And all of a sudden we end up in a place really, really fast. And so I guess when I think about what excites me, yeah, there are some really exciting possibilities about that. But that also is scary too, right? Like, are we going to be able as a society to manage growth that fast, growth faster than what we have ever seen before. I'm not sure what it'll look like. Maybe humans will have some kind of, you know, self-regulation mechanism built in where we all kind of say, okay, we need to slow down a little bit and think through these things. Maybe we'll, you know, maybe the pace will taper off. I'm not sure. But if it doesn't taper off, I'm not sure if we're equipped 
to handle those changes. You can see this in small ways too, like take the, uh, the obesity epidemic or just nutritional change. The way that we eat now is so vastly different than the way we ate 200 years ago, but the way we ate 200 years ago wasn't that different from the way we ate 2,000 years before that. And because things are changing so fast, our bodies, the evolution doesn't work that quick, but society is changing that fast. So now our, you know, our bodies are eating all these processed foods and more sugar and salt and fat than ever before. And we haven't evolved to be able to handle that biologically, but it is the society we live in. So I guess the question is, will the human body and brain be able to manage and handle rapid societal shifts or rapid changes in the environment? that are a result of technology and innovation. And I'm not sure. We'll see. And it's interesting that you, you know, I, I read an article of yours talks about, you know, email and keystrokes and all this, and that it's something that we're dealing with, that we have been dealing with for a little bit now, that, you know, when, when my, I talked to my father about how he grew in his career, you know, he talks about having five different phones around him and juggling all of them at the same time. And now it's, he's receiving 300 emails a day. And his phone won't let us have dinner. So um, hmm. it's just it's an interesting point that you bring up. But thank you so much, uh, James, for being on Process. Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. You heard it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with James Clear. Thanks so much, James, for sharing all of that with us, his favorite quotes, and how he manages to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And with 500,000 people watching him every month, the pressure's on. I'll be posting more on where you can find them online in the show notes. And speaking of show notes, I've made them easier to visit. You now can go to process.show to read up on James and our other guests. And like always, thank you so much for listening to Process. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be really grateful if you subscribed on iTunes and left us a nice little review, five stars. And that way, you'll be in the loop with our next episode. Tune in next Friday for more from Process on managing the ups and downs of creating and making. I'm Marcela, your host, and this was Process.